great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As we're running, as we're laying aside, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter, the completer of our faith. The one who put us on this path to begin with. What are we fixing our eyes on? What did He do? Not only Him, but what He did. Who for the joy set before Him, it is own race to run, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He completed His course. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Why are we to do that? So that you will not grow weary or faint in your souls and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Anybody battled sin to the point that you have literally shed blood? I haven't. You have not resisted to the point of the shedding of blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, I thank you for just this privilege to read your word, to focus intently on your word. I thank you for these men um, that have given time out of their day to love you, to love you with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all of their might or all their strength. Thank you for this this time, this hour, and so that you have carved out for us before we begin our day. Thank you for this passage. Um, thank you that you are so gracious and kind. Thank you that you have given us witnesses, people that have run before us, people that are examples, people that are our cheerleaders, people that rebuke us um, with their faithfulness. Thank you for the command to, to run and to not um, be entangled, not be weighted down. Thank you for the example. Um, thank you for the author of our faith. Uh, Lord, we are not smarter than anybody else. We're not in the kingdom because we're so wise that we woke up one day to choose you. Um, we, we, did, we did cast the die. We, we did choose to follow you, but... But Lord, that was likely because of examples of others, the faithfulness of others to share the gospel with us. And ultimately, you, the author of our faith, who gave us eyes to see. Thank you for the promise that you'll complete our faith. You're the perfecter of it. The good work that you began, you'll continue. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't give up on your race, that you, even though, had a shameful, despised, task bearing wrath on the cross you you did it you accomplished your work and you finished your course um, and thank you that uh, that that's a an admonition to us not to give up um, and thank you father that uh, that in that process from the time we start until the time we finish which is death that you love us enough to discipline us you love us enough to even scourge us whenever we get off track. 
I pray that you would encourage us this morning. Teach us from your word. Help me. Grant the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Move in our hearts. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And do it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Chapter 12, verse 1, near the end of the verse. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There are a couple of things said here as a means to running. It says, lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. Not just sins. Don't just lay aside sins to run this race. Lay aside every other weight that gets in your way. What this says is, don't just ask, what's wrong with it? Don't just ask, is it a sin? That's about the lowest question you can ask in life. So what, well, preacher, what question should I ask? If it's not, is it a sin? And the answer is, does it help me run? Does it get in my way when I'm trying to become more patient, more kind, more gentle, more loving, more holy, more pure, more self-controlled? Does it get in my way or does it help me run? Look to Jesus and lay aside sins for sure. Lots of other stuff. And the little voice is going to say, This looks like a lot of loss and not much gain. At that point, open your Bible to Hebrews 12 2 and look at how Jesus in Gethsemane said, Tomorrow morning is going to be a lot of loss. This is going to be mega loss at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. In fact, it's going to happen all night long. I will never sleep again before I die. And it's going to hurt like hell, literally. How did he do that? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So the answer is, yes, it's going to be loss. But I promise you, on the authority of God's word, the Christian life is gain. Say to the flesh and say to Satan, the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to me. And so, I will lay aside every weight and I will lay aside every sin and I will run with Jesus. So if you're like me, a believer, you probably know well that you're to lay aside sin, right? You probably battle against that on a daily basis. I hope you do. Um, if you don't, that's where you need to get in the fight. Um, nothing in life is, is passive. I can remember hearing MacArthur talking about uh, talking to the evangelical uh, greenies, you know, the environmental folks the, that have picked up, um, you know, this this au natural, which is just kind of uh, want to do everything uh, organic and everything environmental. And uh, he he reminded them that this world is under a curse and this world is going to perish one day. And he said, if you you want any proof of that? Just uh, just don't mow your grass, or don't pull your weeds, or don't cut your hair, or don't take a shower, and and see if it gets any better. It obviously it, it doesn't. It, it it's worse. Um, everything fights against you, and so you're if you're not fighting against sin, there's no coasting. 
I wish there was. How I wish a lot of times that I could just coast. You know, I fought sin yesterday. Maybe I fought it really, really hard. And I get up this morning and how I wish that there wasn't the world, the flesh, and the devil pressing in on me and I could just coast. But that is not the world in which you live in. It is hostile. This is not heaven. Heaven is coming. The promise that you have as a believer is that you have been given the Holy Spirit of God that lives in you. And greater is He that is in me than what? He that's in the world. So the world is there. It's hostile. It's not getting any better. You don't coast. But God has given you a great gift. The Holy Spirit of God that has power, empowers you. And He's also given us His Word, which the Bible says is the sword of what? The Spirit. The Spirit empowers us, and we have an offensive weapon, and we also have defensive weapons. Paul talks about the armor of God and the shield of faith and all those other things. So if you're not fighting against sin, um, you have to, because it's not going to get any better. And to the extent that I don't, then God is very gracious in disciplining me. He disciples me. You know, the word discipline is not all negative. It's discipling. It's like guardrails. You know, the Lord keeps me, you know, in the ditches. He he nudges the uh, nudges the the steering wheel. Um, he doesn't always wreck the car. <laughs> he doesn't always jerk the wheel. He just nudges it. And then sometimes, whenever I run in the ditch, he has to scourge me, and that's painful. So you're fighting against sin. You probably do that. You probably know that. Okay? You probably know to fight against whatever it is that, that besets you. You probably know that there's certain things. If you've been a Christian a, a while, you know there are things that don't tempt you, uh, maybe don't tempt you to the same level as they do somebody else, and you probably also know that there are certain things that do. Um, those are the things that, that easily um, uh, overtake you. What, what the admonition from Hebrews this morning and, and our lesson this morning and what Piper talked to us this morning about is it's not just sins that you are battling against. Our task is, is to battle against those things which weigh us down from running the race. Have you thought about that? Um, what hinders us from running? We know sin does. <laughs> you can't serve God and and sin. But what about the weights? And and the writer of Hebrews gives us a uh, an analogy here of a of a runner. And he says, "Let us lay aside." This is in verse one. Every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Every encumbrance, every encumbrance, every entangling sin. And then he says, let us run the race. Notice that there's a a race that you're to run. If you're not in the race, you have to start the race. You're running a race. And you do that with endurance. Notice the race is set before us. It's already marked out. Um, God's planned it out. There's the Christian life. What's the goal in the Christian life? To be conformed to the image of Christ. There's a work that He began. He will complete it. He will continue it. That's the race. What are you to do in the race? You are to lay aside the encumbrances and you're to lay aside the entangling sins and you're to run. And you're to run with endurance, steady determination. Some of you in here are are runners. Um, Pastor Stephen is a runner. Glenn is a runner. I'm not a runner. <laughs> not physically. But you know that if you're going to start the Virginia 10 miler or a marathon or whatever it is, that you have to pace yourself and you have to run with endurance. Um, And that race is marked out ahead of time. You don't get to just run 10 miles and then you're done. 
there's a hill at the end of the 10 miler I hear uh, not by personal experience but from others it's marked out before you there's ups and downs and you have to pace yourself and you run with endurance and that race is set before you it's marked out ahead of time now picture if you will somebody beginning the Virginia 10 miler or a marathon is probably a better analogy because you have a long life and you have a long race in front of you Picture that person showing up for a marathon or the 10-miler um, with their blue jeans on, with their wallet and their keys in their pocket, with uh, maybe a set of work boots on, uh, maybe they're carrying their book bag or their briefcase, um, maybe they've got you know like a big water bottle with a D-ring and they've got that, that hanging on their side. Maybe they're like Tim Boyer and they carry around a thing of keys about this big that's hanging on the other side. And they show up to run the race. Um, and they're there at the finish line. Or at the, at the, I should say the starting line. They're probably not going to be there at the finish line. And you get the point. That's not how you run the marathon or the 10-miler. Okay. Now, if you don't train before then, if you don't run the race course, if you don't, if you don't, um, if you don't um, pace yourself, if you don't run with endurance, then then you're not going to finish either. But you have to prepare to do that, and you have to lay aside the the water bottle and the keys, and you have to dress properly. The in, encumbrances which are going to keep you. From running the race. And so Piper's admonition is don't just ask, is it sin? As a believer, you ought to know that. That's baseline. Is it a sin? And some of you might not even be fighting against sin. And if that's the case, that's where you need to start. You're probably not even in the race. You're probably, not even, uh, you're, you're probably laying in the ditch somewhere. And the Lord is gracious and He'll help you and pick you up. Get back in the race. But if you're in the race, more than sin, ask the question, does it hinder me from, from running? Um, and so this morning, we're on page 20, and our study is a man who flees temptation. And in the Christian life, we know that explicit sin must be expunged. It must be overcome. It must be removed as we grow in Christ's likeness. But we also have to manage other things. We have to be careful to manage particular portals or gateways where temptation and sin can give entrance into, into our lives. And this section deals with five of those particular areas. Five, I, I would call them particular encumbrances that can turn to sins and while they're not exhaustive they, they give the man of God the opportunity to begin thinking critically about how to walk faithfully with the Lord or how to to, to run the race um, somebody open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 through 27 Who's willing to do that? All right, Nathan. Somebody open to First Peter chapter one verse thirteen. Read that. Thank you. Okay, First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-four through twenty-seven. Here are the passages. Two of the passages that I picked up that set the the table for the study of man who flees temptation or a man who lays aside. The encumbrances. Right? Nathan, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen how Paul describes this race. Use this race analogy again. And think of your life and what you're to do. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I 
have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Self-control. Um, punching yourself out. Beating your body into submission. Discipline. Um, remember the very first video we showed where Phil Johnson talked about being a man of God and it's not being a figure skater? Those aren't figure skater words, are they? Self-control, discipline, um, labor, practice. That's the that's the Christian life. Empowered by the Spirit of God, guided by the Word of God, but that's what's before us. Um, you read First Peter chapter one verse thirteen for us. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right. I'm going to have him read that again. I want you to listen to specifically what you're commanded to do there, what you're exhorted to do. There, there are three things. All right. Read First Peter chapter one verse thirteen again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? What are the three things? It's the first thing that he says there. Prepare your mind. Okay, prepare your mind. Um, some of your translations may say, gird up the loins of your mind, King James says. And the idea is like, you know, a robe or a, a tunic, something that's flowing. Grab... In our analogy, uh, you're not a lady in a wedding dress, but this might give you a mental image. You see how they, you know, they, they pull it up so they don't step on it in their high heels. We're not women in high heels. But in Paul's day, there were, there's a robe, there's a tunic, and they're, they're, they're cinching it up. They're pulling it up so they don't, they don't step in it. Take hold of the loose thoughts of your mind, a well-disciplined mind. Don't just let it go. Prepare your mind. What was the second thing? Be sober. Be sober-minded. Because you have to prepare, and then you're to to keep sober-minded. It's it's to be in charge of of, of your priorities. Uh, be sober-minded. The exact opposite of of what people are taught in the world today, in particular young people. Um, millennials or whatever term that the world gives them. They're not sober-minded. They're not thinking about serious things. They're just kind of floating through life. Live for the moment. Live for the day. Um, keep sober. And what was the third thing? Set your hope. Set your hope. All right? I mean, all of those are actions that, that you're commanded to, to, to do. You're to prepare your mind, um, take control of the loose thoughts, you're, you're to keep sober. You're, you're to be in charge of your priorities. You're to live. You're to order your mind based on biblical priorities. And then you're to, to live for the future reward. You're not to live for the here and now. You're to, to fix your hope. And areas of sin that we're going to look at and potential sins... Um, these shouldn't be looked at as like five separate areas. I think this is probably the one of the things that I was most was most helped with in this study and being reminded of. Sin in your life is like a web. I say they're like birds. They they stick together. Um, so everything is interconnected in some way. When the Bible says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the passage we have coming up in Mark, that doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to love God with my mind right now. And now I'm going to love God with my body, you know. And now I'm going to I'm going to love God with my heart. It it, it, it means love God with all of you are. You're 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 interconnected. Um, your your spirit is connected to your body. If you feel bad physically, that affects the way that you live and you approach life and, and maybe even your mental state. Um, so these things aren't like. Um, uh, compartmentalized as, as we sometimes do. 
if you are uh, if you're entangled in one of these areas or you're weak in one of these areas, it will affect other areas of, of your life. And so while you might have consistent victory in one particular sin area in your life, don't be so quick to think that failures in another will, will not make you more vulnerable. Have you ever had something in your life that you, you gained victory over earlier, when you were younger, and now, 20 years later or 10 years later, you, you fall to that or you start to struggle with that again? What in the world? I mean, I, I gained victory over that. Um, well, wouldn't it be nice if, if, you know, like I said on Sunday, if you got the inoculation, you know, if you got the shot and you never had to deal with it again. You know, you it, sins may come back around. And you say, how does that happen? Well, there may be another area in your life that you're not battling or you're weighed down with that's made you weak in an area that you've already got victory in. So these things are, these things are interconnected. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church in the passage that we read, 1 Corinthians 9, he says he disciplines his body. In the vernacular, we might say he punches himself out in order to make his body his slave so that he will not be disqualified as a result of sin in his life. Now there's a wonderful thing about that Hebrews passage, running the race that's set before us. Um, the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times and then he does what? He rises again. So as long as you're alive, as long as you know Christ, um, you're not out of the race. Even if you've fallen, then God can come around and pick you up. You might run with a limp for a while. Um, you might run with a limp the rest of your life. But praise God, you're still running. And you're still going to cross the finish line. I can remember Mike Cook and I, when we did a TCS uh, fundraiser years ago, and we did an eight-miler, and uh, it was down at the Amtrak station in Lynchburg, at the end of the, um, uh, the Blackwater Trail thing down there. And there's a hill at the end of it, and I can remember Mike and I, we were cheering people on. Neither one of us were, were running. <laughs> and we watched this lady. I have no idea who she was. She was probably in her 60s. <clears throat> she was way out of shape. And, and I mean, you know, she was she, she was coming up. To, I don't think she was moving like this this fast. And Mike said, you know, this other 20-year-old blows by her. And, and Mike said, you know what? When you cross the finish line, it really doesn't matter uh, what you look like. <laughs> uh, you cross the finish line. And that's the hope that, that's set before you. Um, and, and you're in the race. Uh, now, I hate falling. I don't want to fall seven times. I don't want to fall one time. But I have the promise that if you do, and you have the promise if you do, a righteous man rises again, and the Lord will will raise you up, and He'll even He'll even use that. But how do you keep from falling? You don't want to be disqualified completely. You don't want to be proven to be an unbeliever. Um, you don't want to finish farther back than you have to. So we want to examine some of these common portals, and the first one is you must be aware of the tendency to fear or worry. Now, whenever you began the study, whenever you saw the, the topic, hopefully you studied it ahead of time. Let's say when you opened it up, and you said a man who flees temptation. What immediately came into your mind? What did you expect first on the list? Joseph. Joseph. Sexual sin? Sexual sin. I anticipated that to be first on the list. It should be on the list. On my list and on your list. The first one that's on the list is is the tendency to fear or worry. Fear is connected to idolatries of time and personal gain. It's a focus on what I will lose, not what I've gained. It's a focus on earth's possessions and not Christ's promises. Fear, at its root, is idolatry. 
because it focuses on something other than other than Christ. Um, it focuses on what I will lose, or what I could lose, or what I have lost, um, not on what I have what I've gained. I remember D. James Kennedy says, fear or anxiety is like paying interest on money that you haven't borrowed. It's like paying interest on a debt that you don't have. You never go to the bank and just give them interest. Here, I'd like to give you some interest on money. You pay interest on money that somebody else gives you to use. Fear is self-preserving. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. You know this passage well, I'm sure. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Now think about where this is. What section of the gospel is this? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he goes to Galilee, starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So this is the sermon that Jesus preaches all over Galilee. It's not some obscure passage. I mean, this is central to the teaching of the Messiah when he <clears throat> presents himself to Israel. And part of that is about fear. It's about anxiety. <clears throat> kind of puts some weight to it, doesn't it? It's just not just like, you know... Philippians 4, even though all of the Bible is the Bible. This is, Jesus could have preached anything, and he includes the tendency to fear or worry as a, as a temptation, as a portal. And what's he doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's showing everyone under sin. He ends this with an invitation. There, there are two gates. One that leads to life, one that leads to death, two roads. There's two ways to live your life. You build your house on the sand or on the rock. And so this is to show people that they're guilty before God. And so it's, it's a big deal. Verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Think about that statement. Do you worry about your life? I do. I have things about it. Maybe not everything. But I can't tell you that my natural inclination when I wake up in the morning is I'm not going to worry about my life. I'm not going to worry about what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to drink. I'm not going to worry about what i got to do today because God's got it. It's not natural. I have to fight to do that. And especially whenever it comes to things that matter. Like where am I going to work or... What are my kids going to do? Or, or who are they going to marry? Or, or some major event you know, in, in my life. Um, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body. You worry about your health? As to what you will put on. Realize how much time human beings spend in the mirror? clothes are in your closet even as men now don't even don't even go there for your wife or your or her shoes or anything else and then he says look at the birds of the air they don't sow nor they reap or gather <coughs> into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them where does he direct our focus back to our heavenly father are you not worth more than that what does this say it's saying that the, the fear or worry or anxiety about all of those things is actually um, a belittling of God, a belittling of His care. Now, is He saying don't work? You know, don't provide for your family? No, He's not saying that. I mean, you're commanded to do those things. Worrying about getting beyond that or what will happen. You set your hope in God. You do what you know to do, but you trust Him. And fear is self-preserving, not God-preserving. That's the roots. You think you can preserve yourself <coughs> when only God can preserve you. And that's futile. And it can be life-consuming. Um, 
lay aside the things which hinder you from running? Is fear or anxiety hindering you from running, from being what Christ could have for you today? You're not even promised tomorrow. What about today? The result is pursuing things that you're you're good at. You pursue what is what is easy. And what are we supposed to pursue? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what's the rest of it? All these other things. There's the pursuit. The pursuit's not self-preserving. Spiritual priorities can be muddied. I have a hard enough time keeping my spiritual priorities in front of me without wearing my work boots and my Tim Warrior keys. Here's a lack of trust in God's provision and fear leading to selfishness results in a lack of concerns for others. If you're so consumed about whether you're going to have this or that, that's going to keep you from running and it's surely going to keep you from from being concerned about others. Um, Let me encourage you and maybe rebuke you at the same time. This morning at 5.30, probably 5.15, my dear mother, who's 76 years old, set her alarm and got up 45 minutes early to drink her cup of coffee so she could be clear-headed so at 6 o'clock, 6 a.m., she could go to her little sunroom to get on her knees and pray for you men Mm-hmm. And for me, teaching me. Um, you think that took discipline? Mm-hmm. Now, what if she got up and she started thinking about all of the needs that she had this day? What's my dad going to do? What if I have to you think that would hinder her from praying? For us, of course. Um, but she, self discipline, she got up. She didn't just get up at six and start praying. She prepared. She got her coffee. Nothing wrong with a little caffeine. Use all the helps that God can give us. <laughs> and if she was so focused on all of that, then she surely couldn't focus on serving others, which is what she's doing. Probably still, right now. I have to text her whenever I'm done. Because when I'm done, that's when she stops praying. Fear is leading. Fear leading to selfishness. Getting a lack of concern. You must be aware the tendency. So lay aside. Be aware of that portal. Number two. We must be aware of our tendency to become inordinately attached to things. (coughs) Stuff. You know about sins. What about these? This is the backside of what fear and anxiety produce in one's life. There's a tendency to become attached to things. And things can become idols. And it's not just about the things, it's about what your heart reveals in the things. I know a Christian man um, who has three or four homes. Um, probably a list of other stuff and he could not even tell you if he had to write down all of the things that he has if you will write down everything that you have or even 75% of what you have or even 50% of what you have even the big things and that will keep you out of jail for the rest of your life he would go to jail for the rest of his life he has no idea what he has um, it's the backside of fear and anxiety. <clears throat> and you have to guard against being weighed down with them such that they rule our affections. And this could be particularly different, uh, difficult in, uh, in our country. You know, um, people go on mission trips. Great, go on mission trips. 
I go to Nepal, I've been to Nepal, been to Africa, you've been to these places, you've been to Haiti, you've been to wherever, and you look at the poverty that's there, and it's horrific, and it's bad, and typically when you send young people on mission trips, they come back and they talk about the poverty, and how I have all of this stuff, and these people don't have anything, and you want to pray for the people that are in Haiti or Nepal or wherever else. You know who we really should be praying for? <laughs> Us. Which is harder, having stuff or having nothing? Well, there's a temptation to both. The Bible says, you know, that there's that prayer in Proverbs, Lord, don't give me too much so that that I'll I'll forget you and give me enough to where I won't seek after those things and, and, and sin. Give me just the right amount. Do you pray for just the right amount? Or do you pray for more? That's what your heart wants. There's nothing spiritual about taking vows of poverty or divesting of whatever it is, whatever God's placed in your hands. He's given to you, not to somebody else, to you. And He sovereignly determines the positions that His, His servants have in the kingdom. So we're not to be... We're not to be envious if God exalts somebody over us. We're not to go, wow, if I just had more like that guy or that woman than, than this, I would be better. You know, you labor. There are people that work twice as hard as you do and have way less than you do. Okay, So I understand the American dream. Give me the opportunity and I can do it. And part of that is true. The God's involved in that somewhere. What you have, the Lord's given you, and you're a steward in that, but that can be particularly difficult. The more that you have, to whom much is given, is required. So which is harder? To be dirt poor in Nepal? Well, there's some more difficulties about that. Or to have a lot of stuff, have it in your hands, and not and have it around your feet, and not trip over it while you're running, have it in your hands and then and then turn loose of it. I have a whole lot harder time once I get it of turning loose of it, which is why the Bible commands, and God is gracious in commanding, regular giving. Because it forces us to turn loose on a regular basis of what's in our hands so it doesn't pile up around our, our feet. So Charles Wesley said whenever he came to America, he said there's going to be a big problem. I'm paraphrasing. The Protestant work ethic, a free country opportunity for advancement. There will be nothing that will hinder these people from growing in wealth. And you know what his solution was? <clears throat> Don't take vows of poverty. He came up with a mantra, make as much as you can so you can give as much as you can. So the, the answer is, is, is not to not use the gifts that God's given you. The answer is make sure you keep a hole in your bucket. Whatever you put in the bucket, make sure that it's draining out. Because if not, it's going to pile up, it's going to overflow, and it's going to get around your feet. And it can be, even become idols. Yeah. Uh, Ron? Oh, I, I heard this missionary say one time that um, when he was overseas, since the people were just so impoverished, they didn't have anything else they could lean on besides Christ. Mm -hmm. And so since we're here in America, we have all of these things and, and stuff that we can run to instead of <coughs> to God in, instead of doing that and so yes. that could also be uh, an encumberment or like a weight that would stop you from running. Absolutely. Yeah. And it again it's, it, it's not I mean you have what you have. It's this is something you have to guard against. Um, I prayed for things when I didn't have things in seminary. Um, and I may pray about it, but not with the same fervency or dependency. Whenever I have money in the bank to go buy it. So the ruling affection of our heart about our things must say the Lord can give or take. And the Lord can give or the Lord can take. If you think that you're the source of your stuff. Um, the best thing that God could do would be take it away from you. It would be a curse if He didn't. The Lord can give and the Lord can take. 
hold it with free hands. Failure to do so will inhibit wise decision making. Why would it inhibit wise decision making? It might fear you lose it. Don't you make decisions based on your future or what it will do if you lose it? We must follow the example of Job. Shall we not indeed accept from God, uh, accept good from God and not accept adversity? Do you expect always good to come in this life? Isn't it a natural tendency whenever adversity comes to ask why? What's wrong? And the answer is Christ must be controlling our affections. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 9. What's the antidote to these idols? This idol of things, idol of stuff. What is it today? Convicting passage. Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Follow me. Um, I have nothing of this earth. And he said to another, follow me. Christ must control your affections. And Christ, your affection for Christ can't be rivaled by anything. So Jesus says, this man follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. Permit me first to go receive the inheritance that would come to my father. That would come with the burial. But Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. Allow the spiritual dead to bury the physical dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said, No one, after putting his hand in the plow and looking back before the kingdom of God, you will cut crooked roads. You ever used a hand plow? This thing's got just a single wheel. Used to still have one. My dad, looking back, seeing a kid do that, and get off track. Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. Christ must be controlling our affections and nothing can rival Him. And the point is not will things rival Him. The point is that they will. And you have to be aware of that. And so He's calling you to evaluate that even, even this morning. Let's look at number three. We must guard against the temptation to become bitter and easily offended. A man who flees temptation... I want you to note that we have not said anything about sexual purity yet. We're talking about things that can trip us up. And here is bitterness and offense. The Christian's tendency must be toward forgiveness. It is glory. It is for your glory to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 19.11, the second half of that verse. Are you easily offended? Um, do you have bitterness in your heart? Is there somebody, even right now, that whenever you think about, they grate you? You have a list of, of something. You get against them. You, you may have figured out how to function. But there's still something in your heart um, almost like a like a catch that whenever you drag a, 
you know, a woolen sweater across it, it, it catches and it, it, it makes a pull in it. There's something in your heart, whenever that person is drugged across your heart, when you think about that person, it catches and it, and it, it pulls. When we don't forgive, it's a reflection of what's going on in our own spiritual life. Which is why you have to guard against the temptation to become bitter and easily offended. When you don't forgive, it's a reflection of what's going on in your own spiritual life because the focus is you. Not on others. Look at C. Bitterness, as a Christian, is like saying to Christ... I want all the benefits of the cross, but I won't offer that to someone else. It doesn't work that way, does it? About don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, that's how you fight against bitterness and unforgiveness. It's not that people don't do stuff against you, and it's not that it doesn't hurt. It does. And they can do legitimate wrong to you. And the way that you guard yourself against that is you remember the great wrong that you did against Christ and the benefits that He gave you. But sometimes even that's not enough. You then have to act. And the way that you attack, the way that you inoculate yourself, the way you prevent bitterness and unforgiveness from rising in your heart is thinking about Christ and then you overcome their evil by doing good to them. And so when the offering was taken, I gave money to the offering. And that's become a joke in our, in our meetings, hasn't it, Mark? Yeah. And in any time my good brother hears me beginning to go in that direction, he'll say, do we need to take up an offering? <laughs> it's like the, you know, <laughs> in this worldly homes, like whenever you say a bad word, you got to put 50 cents in the cuss jar or whatever. You know, in, in the Christian world, Mark says that we need to take up an offering. Um, the evil is acknowledged by God. God is the avenger of evil. He will take care of them. He is the one who will spank them. He's the one who will do that. You have to manage your own heart. And the way that you do that is to overcome evil with good. Um, because carrying bitterness invites satanic deception and folly. Um, it opens you up to other things. Carrying bitterness feels joy and peace. But you focus on human justice, and you lose your focus on God. That's why the whole social justice movement's messed up. It's not a focus on God. Bitterness will not only erode convictions in the area of forgiveness, but other areas of your life, which is why you have to deal with it. Remember, sins go together. And it will cause you to fight unnecessary battles in sanctification. If you're always battling in your heart unforgiveness or bitterness toward a specific person, then it's going to take your energy away from fighting other battles and you have other battles to fight. And being easily offended turns into personal baggage. I don't need anything around my around my weights. Maybe if you go back to the running example, um, you've seen those, uh, you know, like those wristbands or ankle things that are, are like sandbags that, you know, help you, they're supposed to help you uh, exercise. Bitterness is like one of those things. We must guard against a strong appetite for amusements. Another portal huge issue for young men in our culture. This is not something that that I personally have have, uh, have struggled with, but, but the whole idea of gaming, there are people that spend hours, hours, and hours gaming. 
Um, you have to guard against a strong appetite. Is there anything wrong with with, with playing a PS20 or whatever the thing is today? I don't even know what, what it is. Four? What is it? Five? Four? Four at the moment. There's nothing wrong with having one of those. We have one. Our kids have one. But you have to guard against an appetite, strong appetite for those things. I grew up watching TV. Tracy grew up with no TV in her home. Um, and so the extent of hers is the Hallmark Channel. Fred Hefting sent me a, uh, I taught him family life and talked about Hallmark Channel. He sent me a, a text a few weeks ago. I'm sitting in my home and Heather's got the Hallmark Channel on. And I'm dying a slow death. <laughs> I'm back. Death by uh, estrogen. It's horrible. It's a horrible day. Tracy watches the Hallmark Channel you know, with Olivia periodically. Um, but I grew up with the TV always on. To guard against an appetite for that. Why? Enjoying leisure is not inherently wrong. The problem is loving it. Because it takes away from ministry time. Because we're running. And I don't want anything that will hinder me from running. It also erodes sober-mindedness, which is one of the commands. To be self-controlled. Um, if, you, if you ever start feeling proud about what you know or your abilities, you should read church history or read American history. Read the fact that Thomas Jefferson or George Whitfield or Wesley, you know John Wesley, 14 years of age. Uh, Thomas Jefferson at 14 years of age had mastered Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Um, that Jefferson managed over a hundred servants in a in, in the homestead at 14 years of age. Think about what you could know and how far along you, you could be in your spiritual life if you trimmed back some of the leisure time. Think about the ministry that you could do to other people. We're always saying we never have time. Well, what are you doing with that time? Real life is spiritual war. <clears throat> And it's serious. And I'm afraid a lot of times we, we think we're in peacetime rather than rather than wartime. And there's time for R and R. There's time to come off the front lines, but there's a war going on. And so how you guard your heart makes the difference. And finally, you have to guard against the fear of man. Fear of man. Are you concerned about your own reputation? Do you have a fear that other people will find out about you what God already knows? Does it matter to you whether people know about your besetting sins? Even as you're sitting here listening to this this morning, you're saying, yeah, I'm spending too much time doing that. Do other people know that? Would you be worried if they did? Would you be worried because it may hinder them, or would you be worried because you want them to think better of you than you really are? Because if it's that, then you may have an issue with fear of me. It's a concern of your own reputation. <laughs> It's the opposite of what Proverbs 3, 6 says. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart. Our greatest concern in the church should be the reputation of God. And you say, well, what about if people criticize me and it's wrong? Well, there are plenty of other things that they could have criticized you for and been right. They just picked the wrong thing. I don't like to be criticized. I mean, I labor to get the text right. I, I, 
I, I was up very early this morning. I left here at 9 o'clock last night. I, I want to do right. I want to serve you. I want to serve Christ. Um, and people sometimes unjustly criticize whatever it might be. And my immediate tendency is, if you had any idea what I do, and that's where my heart naturally goes. Um, and what this tells me is, yeah, but what about the times when that wasn't the case? Yeah, it might be wrong. The criticism you get might be wrong, but they just picked the wrong thing to criticize you about. There are plenty of things to criticize you about. You know, Spurgeon's analogy, somebody paints a moral portrait of you and it's black, it only needs a few darker touches to be closer to the truth. You're not a good person. You don't have a good reputation. Christ does. And you must be honest with the Lord and say, what am I trying to portray to others? And is it even remotely what I truly strive to be or even remotely connected to the reality of my heart? Do you present to people something that's not true because you want to be well, well thought of. Nothing will plague your godliness and ministry as a man or as a disciple of other men more than wanting to be somebody. Can God shelve you or your ministry, whatever it is that you do, and you be okay with that? If you're not, it's a problem. We have two other portals that are listing idolizing family and intellectual pride and it probably puts more on the list. Right? So what hit you? And what are you going to do about it? <clears throat> if you have a race to run and it's not just come to pastor and listen to Grace and Grammy. You're focusing on sins and the things that entangle you. So your assignment for this week is to specifically take out of this list, maybe something else, but specifically out of this list, and develop a battle plan. How you're going to, to lay aside these things that, that are entangling you. And if you need some help doing that, find somebody else and come to them. Kill this last one. Come to them and say, when I was sitting in Grace and Granite, I have an inordinate affection for stuff. Or I spend too much time doing these leisurely things, and I want to kill it. I want to lay it aside, but I don't know how to do that. Um, if you have the fear of man, kill that by coming to somebody else and telling them what only you know and God knows about you and then ask them to help hold you accountable for that. So your, your assignment is to take whatever this is and develop you know, some kind of battle plan to overcome it. Where do you go? You look at the list of verses that are here. I would start by reading those verses. I'd start by memorizing one of those verses that's specific to whatever the issue is. Um, then I would pray about it. I would ask the Lord to help me. And then I would... Find somebody else. <clears throat> Ask God to lead you to somebody who's good in that area. That that's not an encumbrance for them. And get close to them. Um, and uh, and learn. And do that over the next you know, few days and I'll send out my normal email and give you some, some additional things. Any comments? Anybody want to share anything? Just one thing, where he, in, under number four, he said this is a huge issue for young men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where, where does the, where does that uh, young? He, he must have a broad definition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thank him for that. Okay. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, you can say all men. <laughs> yeah. I heard a quote from a friend. He said, if "You're hanging on by a thread. Let it be from." Uh, this kind of this garment. Mm. Wow. That's good. That's good. That's good. Amen. Life will soon be over, guys.
you will not regret one moment serving Christ or pursuing Him. I've never seen any man as deathbed that said, moments before he died, bring me my stock portfolio. I want to look at it just one more time before I go into eternity. Bring my soccer trophies. I just want to behold them one more time before I slip off into eternity. I want to, I want to read my book one more time. Whatever it is. People want their family around. They want to make things right that they hadn't made right before. And, and a believer is longing to be with the Lord. So don't waste your life. He's worth it. Amen? Amen. Father, we love You and we praise You. I pray that You take these truths and sink them deep into my heart. These men, bless them, Lord. Help them to go throughout this day because they have been, have done a good thing and they have pursued You uh, this morning. And You are a good God and full of joy. Bless them, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.